I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Regulatory clarity is a clarion call in the cryptocurrency industry as entrepreneurs, financiers, and even policymakers seek more predictability as to how to approach a universe of cryptocurrencies with at times less than obvious legal status. And with a highly unusual situation of more enforcement actions, more money, and more regulatory and industry posturing, a new urgency has emerged to bring more transparency to a sector growing rapidly. Now, how just to do that is the subject of considerable debate, in part because it's complicated. Once you start to think about what features are associated with a security or commodity, you can quickly fall into a rabbit hole of nuance and considerations worthy of a Georgetown securities law exam. But it's not impossible, and people are trying. And one of the most ambitious efforts is the Digital Asset Market Structure and Investment Protection Act, introduced several weeks ago by Don Beyer, which is largely considered one of the most ambitious efforts to date to address some of the legal ambiguities for digital assets, and it seeks to better define their place within existing financial regulatory structures. And with so many of our listeners wrapped up in the issue, we thought it would be fun to talk to an expert to get a good sense of the bill, not only in terms of the substance, but also to get an insider's look at what it means to bring clarity and the challenges embedded even in solutions. So to help walk us through that rabbit hole, I am delighted to have Patrick McCarty, the former CFTC general counsel, Hill insider, and Georgetown instructor who has been working with the buyer office for nearly 15 months on the issue. Pat, thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you very much for having me, Chris. So maybe you can just walk us through at a high level the, the most important parts of the bill just so we can get an understanding of, of what it's trying to do. Well, I think, first of all, uh, Don Beyer is pro-innovation and pro-digital assets. I think He thinks this is a great, great area with a lot of promise, can create a huge number of good-paying jobs here in the United States. Uh, so he's very much for that, and he wants to basically help it develop. He thinks that one of the best ways to do that is to provide legal certainty and regulatory clarity. And that's, I think, at the bottom what this bill is attempting to do. Um, The bill's got five different uh, titles. It's got a securities title, commodities title, banking title, BSA, AML title, and then a reports title. And it's attempting to basically provide a good structure to work off of for Congress in terms of starting down the road of regulating this area, providing some clarity. So the industry and investors and market participants know what they're doing and what they're subject to. Yeah, it's uh, pretty fascinating. And I even point listeners to uh, a study just out by Latham and Watkins on the bill, which I think does a great job synthesizing it. as I understand it, the bill would introduce new terms to the lexicon and basically requires the categorization of digital assets as either digital assets or digital asset securities. Um, this categorization would then uh, presumably kick off considerations relating to 
regulatory consequences of that categorization, or or am I getting something wrong? Well, I mean, let's let's step back just one second and remember that that um, in the twelve thousand token digital asset market, which is worth about two point two trillion dollars, there are some big players that have already been categorized. That would be Bitcoin and Ether are cons- not securities. And so to the extent that uh, it's important to provide legal certainty, I think you're going to have to say, well, if Bitcoin and Ether are not securities, then what are they? And I think uh, based on what the CFTC has done, clearly they're considered to be commodities. So commodities and securities, you have to be one or the other under the bill. It's either a digital asset security under the SEC's jurisdiction or a digital asset being a, a commodity and under the CFTC. It is a little bit like the swaps market, which Dodd-Frank regulated, where they basically said you're either going to be under the CFTC as a, as a swap or you're going to be under the SEC as a security-based swap. So it's you know, people will know I'm either in A or B. It's not going to be like there's A, B, C, D, E, and F, which would be confusing. How different is that then than the world in which we're we're in right now? There's really always largely been a sense that if you're not a security, the world in which uh, you'd have to register and make disclosures to the public, you'd still be a commodity where the CFTC could still exert some of its anti-fraud powers to stamp out fraud and manipulation. Uh, how is this moving the ball? What's new about the legal impact if this bill was to ultimately make its way through Congress? Well, I think if you talked, I, the, the, the idea here is to provide some legal certainty to people or regulatory clarity. And that's one of the reasons why the bill has a joint rulemaking uh, process for the CFTC and the SEC to take the top 25 digital assets by both market cap as well as average daily trading volume and force them to basically do a public rulemaking where they will identify whether it's a security, a digital asset security, or commodity, so that in fact, this will cover roughly 90% of the market cap in the $2.2 trillion digital asset market. And it will cover well over the 90% of the average daily trading volume in the digital asset market, which is significantly higher in terms of clarity than what we have today. As you well know, the SEC is suing um, Ripple over XRP as being an unregistered security. It's one of the top 10 um, digital assets by market cap. And yet, we don't have an answer on what that actually is. And I would argue that we don't really have legal clarity regarding any of the other digital assets in the top 10 and top 25 today. So it's intended to basically give the market and participants and everybody an understanding, and this is what both regulators as well as market participants have argued for, is they just tell us what what we are and what the rules are, and then we can adapt to that. And I think that's a good thing. So so this is um, pretty interesting in part because it's a legislative um, solution, I I suppose, you know, for for this clarity problem. Um, Do you get a sense as to, Maybe uh, why uh, there hasn't been um, more explicit attempts taken up to this point in time, or do you think that it's just inherently a legislative, uh, you know, something that that that, that Congress really kind of has to do in order to to lend this kind of uh, clarity? I, 
Yeah, that's a good question, Chris. And I think at this point in time, um, it's it's incumbent upon the Congress to do something because it has become the market has become so large. There's estimates of 46 million Americans owning digital assets today. Um, it's you know the the size and shape of this and then how it crosses over so many Americans is is sort of leading to the fact that Congress has to do something. It may have. I mean, I thought when the uh, SEC issued their Dow token report in 2017 and then did some additional sort of no action letters in 2018 and gave some speeches, there was a thought that, in fact, the SEC was going to provide a lot of clarity about which digital assets they consider to be securities. Um, That really hasn't happened. And so I think now it's incumbent upon the Congress to do something about that. Okay, so so let's then get back again to to some of the operative provisions of of this proposal here, and and I think that you you just named and outlined you know maybe the the, the biggest issue, which is we have these new categories, and you know we're we're going to at least the bill then suggests that there's a, a finite amount of time for the regulators, really requiring the regulators to undertake this joint rulemaking um, to really clarify and categorize. Um, uh, the vast swath of cryptocurrencies, at least from the standpoint of the the importance of their market capitalization. So, if you are a security under under the bill, or or, or at least are deemed to be subject to SEC oversight, I mean, it, it, this means that now you have your securities that are outstanding and that they're being traded. Um, does this then require exchanges? that are not authorized to trade securities, to delist those securities? And are there any penalties um, for the issuers of those uh, digital asset securities uh, 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 because at least under securities law, as you well know, you know, you're generally forced to register those securities. So these would be unregistered securities floating around and, and, and deemed to be securities. Uh, so would there be any, any penalties? Uh, the bill doesn't contemplate that there would be any penalties to start with, and I think the idea would be that until people are aware whether they are actually a security or whether they're a commodity, that in fact the regulators would not be, you know, giving them um, fines or bringing enforcement actions against them. And the idea would be is that that's something that the regulators will probably provide a certain amount of time for uh, people to come into compliance once there's, you know. A clarity related to this uh, status of these things. I mean, Gary uh, Gensler has said that um, some of these exchanges or trading platforms that list 50 to 100 digital assets, there's got to be at least one or two securities on those, so they should be registered. And you know, the the opposite side would be well, if if 48 or 98 of the the products that are being listed are not securities, does that mean that you know the tail? should wag the dog on that. I don't know. And I think that's something which um, you might even find market participants saying, you know, I'd like to be a securities exchange and that's what I'm going to list, just like you get the New York Stock Exchange and others. The point would be is that they're securities and they should be subject to the SEC and subject to this the SEC's rules. And that's, I think, a fair approach. And I don't think anybody would be surprised by that. One of the more interesting questions involves not just the application of securities law, but but the de-application or the withdrawal of securities law and even the status 
of a crypto asset as a security. Uh, now, it's a notion that really isn't explicit in securities law, but was introduced by Bill Hinman when he was at the SEC and heading the Division of Corporate Finance. Could, could you maybe set the stage a little bit with the backdrop of this conversation and then tie it to what uh, this proposal is trying to do? Uh, Chris, very interesting. Bill Hinman, when he gave that famous speech in 2018, um, when when uh, Howie met Gary Plastics, talked about the fact that Ether started off as a security, but actually changed uh, and became a commodity. And that's because it became decentralized. Uh, to the extent that there are some digital assets that are going to do that, there is a provision in the buyer bill which is entitled desecuritization. And it anticipates the ether type of uh, situation where, in fact, something may start off as a security. They may actually do an ICO to, to get funding so that they can actually create product, service, or platform. And once that's done, they could actually choose to desecuritize and file a notice with the, with the SEC, similar to the existing notice today to deregister a security under Section 12G of the 34 Act. So it would require that the, the actual tokens themselves not provide any equity or debt interest, not provide any right to profits or interest payments, not give you any voting rights in major corporate actions or liquidation rights. And the, the product, service, or platform would have to be fully operational. But it would anticipate the same kind of thing that occurred with Ether occurring to another type of digital asset. And I think that that's, that's an important issue for people to think about because it's an escape hatch for developers of digital assets who think that their tokens should be used as more utility tokens as opposed to being a security token. We've seen a lot of litigation about this stuff. And even if we go about categorizing these things, you can imagine a world where people don't like where they end up. I always tell people, hey, I know you want clarity, but be careful what you wish for. You may just get it. And um, practically speaking, I suppose that an issuer of a security could very well challenge the rule-taking undertaken uh, by the SCC and CFTC. And we still up... Uh, end up in courts? Is, is, is this something that the drafters have anticipated? Is it something that uh, we're, we're ultimately comfortable with and, and, and really able to live with? Now, Chris, this to me, I, I saw your question earlier about this. I mean, this, what, what is anticipated by the bill is basically an APA formal rulemaking where, in fact, there's notice and comment. There would be a proposed rule that the, the SEC and the CFTC would propose what how particular the top 25 in market cap and the top 25 in average daily trading volume would be categorized. People could comment on that, and then they would have to come out, consider the comments, come out with a final rule. It's not unusual to have lawsuits filed by people regarding final agency actions. That is how the world works. I mean, this is not an unusual situation. Yes, there will be some people who are upset no, I don't think that that's kind of like, you know, unfair. The answer is basically is like the world isn't fair. You need to basically sort of say, listen, the, the process that is provided is, is the process that you, is better than the process you've got today, for God's sakes. 
All those people who have filed no action relief requests with the SEC, who have been stiffed for years on what my digital asset is, will finally have a process in place that can actually give them an answer. And I think to the extent that 90% of the market cap and over 90% of the average daily trading volume is addressed, you can't ask for a better solution. I had somebody ask me, you know, like, well, why don't we make it all the way down to a billion dollars in terms of market cap? And I was like, you know, like 90 to 95%. I mean, what's, what's the difference there? 5%? But the point would be is that the SEC and the CFTC, this is a one-time only deal in terms of joint rulemaking. It would be a good thing to have occur so that you could understand where these things are. And the, the final rule, preamble to the final rule, should provide pretty good clarity about what the what the, the markers are or the breakdown about why you're going to fall into being a digital asset security versus being a commodity. And I think that that, that is what the market needs to develop. So this is really interesting, and I and I just want to make you know tie this this clarification issue then up to your original observation, right? You know that 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 we have these different categories, and they're going to fall into the jurisdictional perimeter, the regulatory perimeter of one of the two market regulators, sort of the SEC or the CFTC. Now, now one of the things that Ginsler, that Chairman Ginsler has been stating is in, in going to Congress for is saying, hey, you know, I don't have the tools that I need to regulate the crypto asset market. Is there anything being done? Well, well first of all, you can make an, an assessment as to to what extent do you see that as, as, as an actual problem once you've gone through the task of categorization, number one. And then number two, is, you know, is, is the bill um, uh, trying to or does it in any way qualitatively change the scope of authority enjoyed uh, uh, by the market regulators and, and the tools that they have at their disposal to go about regulating crypto asset markets? Uh, first, I think uh, Gary Gensler was talking about, when he said, was talking about tools, he was talking about financial um, resources. Uh, he was making a pitch for more money for the SEC, which currently has 4,400 employees and a budget annual budget of over $2 billion. Uh, they've got a lot of money and they got a lot of people. I think he's basically saying, gee, if I'm going to do more, have more jurisdiction, then I should have more money to do more things as opposed to um, necessarily dealing directly with the, I guess, tools related to uh, statutory authority uh, over crypto. I think, however, he was also speaking to the point of the cash market for uh, digital assets and specifically for those which are not securities are is not something that the SEC has jurisdiction over. I think even Gary would concede that. So I think he was also suggesting that if, if Congress in its infinite wisdom wants to give him and the SEC jurisdiction over the entire digital asset space, including those digital assets like Bitcoin and Ether, which are not securities, then there should be specific statutory authority in that area. So that, that would be my thought. What, one aspect of you know, the, the, the reforms is that uh, under the bill, um, uh, you know, from even outside the market regulators, you know, is this AML, you know, anti-money laundering, know your customer, KYC sort of provisions under 
the Bank Secrecy Act, basically the, the kinds of stuff designed to prevent uh, anything from illicit finance or uh, terrorism to to human trafficking and the, and the like. And and it, it, the bill uh, basically goes about identifying uh, virtual asset services providers uh, that are engaged uh, even in the United uh, or excuse me outside of the United States, but but that are available to U.S. persons. That that basically these VAS, as they're called, would be required to register with the SEC or the CFTC. Again, e- even if they're located outside of of the United States, I mean, w- you know, what what exactly, um, you know, uh, what are the targets of of that particular provision, and 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 how do you foresee, you know, the the delicate international diplomacy that would uh, clearly result uh, from from that provision as as playing itself out. I mean, obviously, you've been around the block a, a long time uh, uh, in, in the wake of the uh, 2008 financial crisis and serious or, or similar questions arose. But but again, who are the targets and and, and how what kind of process is, is envisioned uh, in that? There's a long tradition of entities trying to set up outside of the United States and market their services to people inside the United States. And I think that uh, recent history in terms of SEC, CFTC, and FinCEN settlements related to entities that are outside of the United States, but are actually carrying on transactions and activities with U.S.-located persons show very clearly that, in fact, the SEC, Department of Justice, FinCEN, and the CFTC all believe that if you're outside the United States, but marketing yourself to or actually working with or permitting U.S. persons to access your services, that you're subject to their jurisdiction and regulation. I I would point out the settlement that the SEC reached with uh, Block One related to EOS uh, offering, which uh, kind of interesting, a $24 million uh, settlement um, on a $4.4 billion ICO that was done over 12 months. Um, they tried to basically block U.S. persons from participating, and yet that was unsuccessful. And Block One settled for $24 million uh, for doing because U.S. persons had actually participated in that offering. I think you see the same thing with the uh, the recent settlement that the SEC reached with um, the the touting group that was based in London for ICOs and didn't basically tell. Uh, the public or disclose publicly that, in fact, they were being paid a fee for pushing certain types of ICOs. Um, I'd also mention uh, the most more recent FinCEN and CFTC um, settlement with BitMEX for $100 million, uh, which was outside of the United States, but letting people from the United States participate in their market and therefore they were unregistered and should have been registered, and they were subject to the jurisdiction of the United States. So that's nothing new, and I think it's uh, kind of you know it's an old story. There's no intention of trying to supplant uh, foreign regulation in this area, but to the extent that if you're providing your services to U.S. persons, U.S. located persons, um, they will be subject to the U.S. laws. And if you'll remember. Uh, one of the major parts of, of Dodd-Frank related to basically providing the SEC with 
basically jurisdiction over some securities fraud transactions occurring outside of the United States was a big deal in terms of reversing the Morrison decision. So it's not, this is not a, a new issue. And in fact, it is something which it's not in the intention of the bill to basically expand it any further, but I think it's you're just recognizing an issue which for years has been uh, kind of an issue for the regulators, both the CFTC and the SEC in terms of um, you know people operating outside the United States and trying to argue that they're not subject to uh, the U.S. laws, and that's not true. Up to this point in time, we've talked about uh, tokens, obviously, and the categorization of different kinds of tokens. But you know, the issue du jour, obviously, is that of DeFi. Um, you know, what's in the bill for DeFi? You know, what's what's the posture of the bill towards uh, decentralized finance? Uh, there's a report requirement uh, of, for the regulators on DeFi uh, to come back to Congress with a report on how active it is, with the volume, uh, the issues and recommendations that Congress can continue consider to understand and, and basically try to do something in that space. So um, it's it does not speak directly to DeFi in the main, the other four titles of the bill, um, because there's probably not enough understanding as to how DeFi operates and what distinctions one should or should not make. Yeah, I, I, I see that there's a, a similar kind of uh, gingerly approach to the banking regulators for the, the FDIC and, and, and the OCC. Um, uh, yeah, in, in some respects, yes. In some respects, no. The banking title is actually, um, it, it gives the Fed direct authority, explicit authority to issue a digital Federal Reserve note. And I would note that Chairman Powell has been very clear with Congress. He has said, one, I do not have the authority under the Federal Reserve Act to issue a digital Federal Reserve note, digital dollar. He's also said, I will come back to Congress for that authority. This bill would actually give him that authority. It doesn't force him to do it, but it gives him explicit authority to do so. Secondly, you know, you can't talk about CBDC without talking about stable coins. The bill would also provide the Secretary of the Treasury with uh, the authority to entertain applications from issuers who want to issue fiat-based stablecoins. Not all stablecoins, just the stablecoins that are pegged to or tied to fiat currencies like the dollar, the euro, the yen, and pound sterling along that line. I can certainly see why this has been described as a very ambitious bill. I mean, it really does address lots of different areas. You know, uh, you've you've been uh, in, involved in these conversations really from, from the very start. And again, you've, you've had a lot of history with the the 2008 financial crisis, um, when you look at this process with uh, virtual assets and the, the legislative process and the intellectual process of trying to generate, uh, let's call it an acceptable amount of of, of clarity for for uh, industry and policymakers, like what's been your biggest lesson learned thus far? Um, you know, when you're trying to coordinate, like what what have you seen have been the biggest stumbling blocks and the biggest opportunities uh, when when trying to draft something that's that's very forward looking um, and, and and is a bit a, a bit out of the you know the 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 
norm, at least historically, since we haven't seen too much legislation coming out uh, about securities, you, you know, what, what, what have you seen and, and what have you learned thus far? There's two things. One is that, um, un- unfortunately, a decided lack of knowledge in the space uh, across sort of the, the various areas. Um, you can find a lot of people who know something about banking. You can find a lot of people who know a lot about securities. And you can find a couple of people who know a lot about commodities. But you can't find many people who are understand all three areas uh, to certain extent that that's that's problematic um, secondly I think the the one thing that I've run into is is a problem with some people trying to say that well we need to jurisdictionally deal with just the security side or we just want to deal with with the commodity side and that's it and I tell them you know I, I wish we could do this but this reminds me of the swaps market and if you remember the swaps market in Dodd-Frank, it was that some swaps are securities and some swaps are not securities. And so there was a need to basically bring banking and financial services committees together with the ag committee to talk about what the right division of responsibility would be, because it's two sides of the same coin. And I think if one really wants to end up with a, a, a product, which you're proud of from a policy point of view, you need to be willing to go in and say, we need to understand both sides of it. We don't want to create any holes. We want to make sure that everything's covered and we want to be fair with, with however we end up deciding to break this up. Now, whoever gets what should be okay, but we want to make, we want to make sure we're not creating holes that are going to be taken advantage of by people who are trying to avoid regulation or fraudsters in particular. So I th- I think that it's it's a it's disappointing, but I it's not that surprising I think because you know quite frankly on Capitol Hill you know the currency of the day is jurisdiction and uh, people want to claim that jurisdiction a lot of times for their committee or for the agencies under their jurisdiction and I, I think that you know it's we're we're past the genie is out of the bottle for Bitcoin and Ether. I think you cannot go back and say, well, we're going to make those securities. I mean, I think industry would go wild over that. And, you know, that's not going to happen. Um, So I think it's lesson learned. Pat, thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you very much. I don't think it's actually a fair statement to say that the government's posture on crypto has always been clear. As one of the many hordes of professors, I've seen even attempts to clarify crypto law, no less from the Venerable Securities and Exchange Commission, largely fall on their face. One need not look any further than the agency's 2019 framework for token analysis, which, instead of clarity, mixed and matched very different Supreme Court cases and doctrines and offered little more than a laundry list of considerations with no sense as to the relationship of the different factors or, for that matter, their relative importance or salience. And in all honesty, I've yet to find anyone, even in the policy community, who found the efforts remotely helpful. Now, This particular bill is pretty interesting. It's not perfect, but it is a start towards addressing with some seriousness an issue that is not just lurking over crypto, but really financial regulation more generally. 
Questions like how regulators will execute their supervision in a world of innovation, and how much will those strategies embrace long-standing principles of law like transparency and predictability. Now, only time will tell, but notably, the bill reminds us that the question is not only the sole province of regulators or even the courts, but Congress may have a say as well. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.